Welcome to Hack Stack Level 4, the final level. We will now be giving you all the hacks you need to explore and, yes, find the meaning of life. To get the most out of this show, please listen to the basic training of the first three levels, starting with episode number one. And now, let's start hacking. Here's your host, Coz. Hey, welcome back to the big show. We are continuing our exploration of the meaning of life. And these are some pretty in-depth discussions. And because of that, you may, if you're just jumping into the podcast right now, this is episode number 25, you may want to take a step back to listen to episode number 24. We sort of lay the ground rules for this discussion. And uh, I think it's really helpful if you check that one out first before listening to this episode. And one of my contentions that I made during that episode is that when you talk about the meaning of life, you really need to talk about God and whether he exists or not. And here's why. Let's break that down a little bit further. If, If you think about how people try to find meaning in their life, what, what are some of the things that people do? You know, some people pursue, uh, material success, uh, fortune and fame, other people try to find meaning by helping people that are in need, whether they be sick or in poverty or something like that. A lot of people are just trying to find out what they're good at and hone that skill and use that to help other people. But then there's also many people that take a slightly different approach. Hedonism, for example, is the pursuit of pleasure and self-indulgence. Basically, if it feels good, do it. And I guess technically there's even things that could feel good or sensual or uh, pleasurable that could hurt someone else, whether that be physically or emotionally. Then if you take that one step further, that you have people that are classified as sociopaths who are basically, you know, these are people with antisocial attitudes and behaviors. Uh, it's classified by a lack of conscience, which basically means, hey, if, if they hurt you, or they lie to you, or they steal from you, or they do something like that, they don't care. It's all about them. And this is not necessarily a discussion of why that happens or how some people are that way or not that way. But if you can compare and contrast all the things I just mentioned and compare that with, uh, you know, some people find meaning in the pursuit of God. So this last one, pursuit of God, it, it really has a profound effect on all the others. I mean, is everything that I mentioned, are they all equally valid? I mean, is there no difference between wanting to pursue self-pleasure and fortune and fame your entire life and that be the highest goal versus someone that wants to help people in poverty or that are oppressed or impoverished? Are those two things all equally valid? And I don't think you can even begin to answer that question until we determine whether God exists or not. So that's that's what we're talking about as we pursue the meaning of life. And so when we get into this question about God's existence and religion and all that good stuff, there is a whole lot of noise that goes on into this discussion. For example, even even in like church circles, people can argue over, should we use wine or grape juice during communion? Uh, wh- you know, <laughs> what type of music should we play in a service? Is it modern? Is it more traditional? 
Is one better than the other? Does God like one type of music more than the other? Gosh, I've gotten into discussions with people over what the color of Jesus' skin was. Things that have no real bearing on some of these more weighty issues people will talk ad nauseum about. So anyway, I say all that just to kind of drive home the point that there are many things that people talk about that aren't as critical to this question. And since I'm a Pareto principle kind of guy, that being that there's a very few things that lead to the most effective results, and you need to concentrate on those very few things that give you, a, I don't know, more bang for your, your buck. Kind of applying that same principle to this question of God will really help progress this conversation. So this is a really big question, and as it turns out, I'm going to try and make this one of the shorter episodes because I truly feel like if you just get the basics and answer some of these questions, you can make huge strides toward determining the answer to this overall question of does God exist or, or what what worldview makes the most sense. But to start things off, I'm going to play just a, you know, a little five, six minute clip. The clip starts off with probably four or five ways that you can either prove or disprove uh, theism. And really, those are the big topics. You know, those are the battlegrounds, in my opinion, of determining this question about purpose and meaning and God. If you can just come to some sort of conclusion on these areas that are about to be mentioned, you will go a long, long way to answering some deep questions and just cutting through all the the nonsense and noise that's out there regarding some of the things that people talk about when it comes to this topic. This clip will also touch on a concept I I mentioned in the prior episode. Uh, You know, the, the last episode was more about truth and subjective versus objective truth. And I'm going to play a little bit extra as well in this clip regarding that topic. One, because it's a nice review, and two, because uh, it also highlights the fact that people, some people that are really, really, really smart can make some fundamental blunders when it comes to thinking. In last episode, I used that analogy, you know, Phil Jackson's a really famous NBA basketball coach, and, and I know nothing about coaching basketball. However, if on my team I had, you know, a bunch of NBA All-Stars and on Phil Jackson's team he had the local middle school players, uh, I'm going to dominate that competition. Not because I am a better coach, because clearly I'm not, uh, but I will dominate because my players are far superior to Phil Jackson's middle school players. And that's kind of what's going on in this clip uh, near the backside of it. It's a clip by Greg Kokel. Uh, I've played a few clips from him before, Uh, and in this particular clip, he recounts the story of a debate that he had early on in his career. You know, this is a point in his career where he didn't have any advanced degrees, he really wasn't that well known, but he's debating with someone that is really well known in, in certain circles regarding these subjects, you know, had published books, been on talk shows, has all the academic credentials. And to use the analogy, he was clearly a better coach than Greg Kokel. But yet Greg Kokel's view, the fact that there is truth, uh, the players in this contest, if you will, were far, were far superior to this guy's player. So again, I'm just stressing the importance that it, it seems like some views are clearly superior to other views. So that's all I want you to pick up from this clip. A, the list of things 
that can prove or disprove God's existence. And that will be the talking points for this episode and probably a couple to come because that is the battleground, if you will. And then B, just just listen to the debate, how uh, Greg Kokel recounts this debate and listen to the subject matter and how it seems to be a really simple subject, but sometimes even really, really smart people just, just don't get it. But again, you judge for yourself. All right, so let's roll this clip. Now, when you think about it, there are lots of ways to disprove Christianity. If there is no God, well, Christianity's false, right? If there was no Jesus, well, there's no Christianity. If there is no soul, then there's nothing to survive the body to go to heaven or hell. If morals are relative, that means there's no objective morality, there's no objective right or wrong, this pretty much eviscerates the concept of sin, And if there's no sin, then there's no need for a Savior. And if there's no need for a Savior, then Jesus becomes irrelevant. So these are all bona fide or legitimate kinds of strategies that people might use and are using aggressively in our culture right now to undermine Christianity. The attack on the reality of the resurrection. If there was no resurrection of Jesus... Paul says that Christians are of most people to be pitied. And this is a talk that I I, I frequently give to non-Christian audiences. Most recently, uh, last year in Purdue University. I'll go on campus and I'll address sometimes a rather large audience. This time it was 1,700 students. And and, and I'll, I'll point out to them that I realize that many of you are not friendly to the claims of Jesus of Nazareth. And you have dismissed considering them for a number of reasons. What I'm here tonight to do is disabuse you of a number of bad reasons for dismissing Jesus. That is, there may be some legitimate strategies. I just mentioned a few of them. I I actually don't think any of those strategies carry the day. But they strike me as at least legitimate strategies. But there are a whole host of other things that have impressed people who haven't thought very much about the issue as reasons to disregard the claims of Jesus that really don't make the great at all. They're bad arguments against God or bad arguments against religion. Some of them really don't even rise to the level of arguments. They're just assertions or they're mistaken understandings, but they're the the kind of thing that may be tossed out in conversations, and you may have heard of these before. And so as I address the non-Christian audience, I want them to know that if you want to come after Christianity, you're welcome to do that, but I want to save you some embarrassment by not pursuing uh, kind of strategies that just aren't going to get you anywhere. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Now, I actually did a debate at Chapman University against Professor Marv Meyer on this issue. And Marv Meyer is is a very accomplished academic. He is an expert in the Gnostic Gospels. The Gospel of Thomas is a Gnostic Gospel. Some of you might have heard of this. My translation of Thomas in my library is Marv Meyer's translation. He's been on every TV show you can imagine that deals with ancient history. He's a member of the Jesus Seminar, and he supports this idea, or at least least he did in the debate, which was entitled, Is Truth True? I was defending the notion that truth was objective. He was saying that I was mistaken. Now, I hope you're already beginning to see a difficulty for Marv Meyer, who has all the academic credentials. I had almost none. I had no Ph.D. I didn't even have a master's degree in philosophy at the time. I do now, but I didn't then. But what I had was 
I had this claim to contend with, which put me, it seemed to me, on the winning side. Because what I explained to the audience is debates are certain kinds of things. They're very particular things. In a debate, which we were in, and Marv Meyer standing there next to me, is each person takes a side and argues that the other person's point of view is false and their view, by contrast, is true. So it seems to me, I told the audience, that if Marv Meyer debates me, then he is conceding the resolve I'm defending. In fact, he doesn't even have to say a word. He's just got to show up. And implicitly, he's there to defend the truth, which truth is there is no truth. And this was my strategy for the entire time. Marv Meyer was a nice guy. He's a friendly guy. He's a good communicator. I was arguing on his turf with his students in the student union there at Chapman. The problem was is the, that what he was defending. It was indefensible on the merits. Now, it doesn't mean that some people aren't persuaded by this stuff. They're persuaded by it all the time. But why would they be if they thought about it? And indeed, my whole strategy was to point that out. Nothing fancy at all. And in fact, after he made his presentation, I would say things like, well, it looks like Marv Meyer is saying that Aristotle is wrong and Derrida is right. That Kokel is wrong and Marv Meyer is right. That our views are false and his views are true. And the true view he defends is that there is no true view. That's all I did. Finally, at the end of the debate, I get the last word. And in the last word, I said, okay, uh, we're going to finish up here now, and you're going to be voting here on the debate, and, and Marv Meyer did a great job, and I, and I hope that, uh, I know that some of you will be voting for him, and I think that's fine. I, I really think he did an exceptional job here tonight. By the way, I want you to remember exactly what you'll be doing, though, when you strike your ballot for Dr. Meyer. When you vote for Marv Meyer has, having won the debate, you will be saying that Marv Meyer has convinced you that his, Mr. Kokel's view was false and Dr. Meyer's view was true. Therefore, every vote for Dr. Meyer <laughs> will be a vote for the resolve, which I was defending. And I said, thank you very much. And everybody started laughing because they got it. Any vote for Dr. Meyer is a vote for me. When the final tally came in, Marv Meyer got one vote. <laughs> Some, somebody wasn't listening. <laughs> there were two other people who wrote a bunch of postmodern gobbledygook around the edges because they didn't want to fall in the trap of striking a box. But it can't be avoided. It wasn't because I was clever. In fact, I remember I was really nervous that day. And I don't think that my delivery was particularly exceptional. The problem was, as he was defending, Dr. Barr was defending something that was indefensible on the merits, the claim that there is no truth. Okay, so that was Greg Kokel describing uh, certain different ways to disprove theism. And then he also talked a little bit about his debate with Marv Myers. And you'll notice at the very end of that clip, the audience was laughing. And they were laughing at the number of votes that Marv Meyer received. And I'm trying to think why everyone was laughing. And I think it was just, it's mainly because it seemed so obvious. You know, you have two really, really smart People arguing and debating and trying to prove truth over something that seems to be really obvious. 
And when you ask questions and point out things in a certain light, uh, sometimes the ridiculousness of a view is brought to the surface. And that's what I'm trying to do on part of this episode is, you know, you've got all kinds of different people out there in the world and they all have different views. And the general perception is, you know, everyone's just kind of right. Everyone's got their own flavor of ice cream. But I'm really trying to point out some of those weaknesses. So if you have a view and you have a weakness in that view, man, I want you to own it. The problem is, is most people aren't aware of those weaknesses. So I want to make you aware and then I want you to own that view. Look, I'm a Christian. There's all sorts of crazy things on the surface that goes along with being a Christian, like all sorts of beliefs that I'm quote unquote supposed to have. And I've wrestled with a lot of those things. And after I have wrestled with those things, uh, they make a little bit more sense. You know, do I have the answers to everything? No. But I do have an answer to a lot of things and for sure an answer to a lot of the bigger things. I just don't think most atheists have done the same thing for their own view. I, I don't think they realize how big some of the weaknesses are. So again, if, if that's you, I, I, I know you may not believe that, but I appreciate you uh, you know stepping in the ring, as it were. And we're going to continue that, that journey and, and that fight, so to speak. We're going to do that right now. If you think about the things uh, Greg Kokel said on, on how to disprove theism, you know, if there's no soul, uh, theism is false. If no Jesus, uh, Christianity is false. If there's no God, obviously theism is false. We are going to talk about that one a little bit. You know, there there's probably three or four major arguments uh, for the existence of God, and some of them take a little bit of research. Uh, but I'm right now on this episode, I'm going to talk about one that really takes no research at all. Because all the information you have to make an informed decision on this matter, you already got. It's your moral intuition, your moral common sense. So we're going to talk about the moral argument for the existence of God. And to set that up, we're going to play a- another clip from Frank Turek. And he starts this clip off with a syllogism. And that is the technical philosophical term for an argument. You know, it has premises and conclusions. And the classic example of that is uh, comes from Socrates, right? Uh, here's an example. So premise number one, Socrates is a man. Premise number two, all men are mortal. Conclusion, therefore, Socrates is mortal. So intuitively, you know the laws of logic point to that being a valid statement. And here, here's another bonus. If you're ever reading like a, a blog or a political commentary or or anything like that, and someone's trying to prove a point, especially if you disagree with that point, all you need to do is kind of reverse engineer some of those things. Okay, what is the author trying to communicate? What is the main point of this blog or political speech or whatever it is? So what's the main point? And then look for the premises that support that conclusion. And if you just do that little exercise the whole world starts to open up. You you start to see through, um, I don't know, people's BS pretty quickly because you'll realize that a lot of time it's it's a lot of yelling, it's a lot of emotion, but at the end of the day, there's there's not a whole lot of substance to some of the things that people say. 
and things can sound really, really, really good, but the reality is they're they're somewhat weak. So that's just a, a free little piece of advice to increase your uh, truth detector, which could come in handy, especially since the political season is upon us. But anyway, we are going to roll this clip and set up the discussion as we talk about the moral argument for the existence of God. And then afterward, we'll start to talk about uh, a really, really difficult question that atheists ask of theists, and then we will also try to answer that question. All right, so let's roll this clip. Here you go. If there is no God, you can't say that this was really wrong. 9-11. So there has to be a God. If there's one thing morally wrong out there, there has to be a God. Absolutely morally wrong. Not just your opinion, it's wrong. You say, how do we know this? Well, let's talk about what the argument states. Here's what it states. Every law has a lawgiver. There is an absolute moral law. Therefore, there is an absolute moral lawgiver. Every prescription has a prescriber. If you go to the pharmacist someday with a prescription, the pharmacist looks at the prescription and looks at you and says, hey, who prescribed this? And you go, nobody. Are you going to get the prescription? No, he's going to say, wait a minute. Every prescription has a prescriber. And what we're saying right now is there is a moral law prescription written on the hearts of humanity. Humanity knows that there's a certain standard of rightness that they all ought to live up to. We know this. If there is that standard, then there's a God. All right, let's look at the evidence for how we know this. First of all, Absolutes are undeniable. We know right from wrong best by our reactions, not our actions. If you want to know right from wrong, don't look at the way I treat you. Because I do wrong all the time. If you want to know right from wrong, or what I think about right and wrong, look at how I react when you wrong me. Okay? For example, I may not think stealing is wrong when I steal from you, but what do I say the second you steal from me? Hey, wait a minute. There's something wrong here. Right? You know right from wrong by your reactions, not your actions. Let me give you another example of this. Uh, There was a a professor teaching ethics at Purdue University a number of years ago. And he had a brilliant atheist in the class. And the professor said, you can write a paper on ethics, any topic you want. The only thing that uh, I require is that the paper be no more than 20 pages. It has to be in my office by October 20th. It has to be properly footnoted, properly referenced. Any topic you want related to ethics. And this atheist wrote a paper as to why there is no absolute right and wrong. Why it's all a matter of opinion. You like chocolate, I like vanilla. Relativism is true, in other words. And he handed it in on time. It was the right length. It was properly footnoted, properly referenced, and he gave it to the professor in a handsome blue folder. The professor got the paper. He opened it up. He started reading. There is no absolute right and wrong. There is no justice. It's all a matter of opinion. You like chocolate. I like vanilla. Relativism is true. The professor closed the paper up. On the top of it, he wrote, F, I don't like blue folders. Next class, the professor gave the paper back to the atheist. He looked at the paper, which was the right length, in at the right time, properly footnoted, properly referenced, very neat, on a topic related to ethics, and on the front of it, it said, F, I don't like blue folders. After class, he stormed up to the professor. He handed the professor the paper. He said, F, I don't like blue folders. That is not fair. That is not right. 
that is not just. The professor said, oh, 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 wait, wait, wait. I read a lot of papers here. Let me make sure I understand your paper. Isn't your paper the one that says there is no such thing as fairness? There is no such thing as rightness. There is no such thing as justice. It's all a matter of opinion. You like chocolate. I like vanilla. Professor, uh, the student said, yeah, that's my view. The professor said, I don't like blue. You get an F. <laughs> Suddenly, the light bulb went off in the student's head. Why? Because he realized that he was judging the professor wrong, absolutely, for judging the paper based on the color of the folder. And you know what? He was right about that. You shouldn't judge the paper on the color of the folder. So after the student learned his lesson, the professor took the paper back and said, you learned your lesson now? And he gave him an A. He said, even though the content is wrong, you did the assignment. Now you've learned your lesson. There is a real standard of right and wrong, and you know it by your reactions when I grade your paper as an F for having the color blue. Secondly, we can't know injustice unless we know justice. How many of you, this goes back a little ways, but there was a debate between Alan Keyes and Alan Dershowitz. This debate probably back in the early, like 2000, 2001, okay? And the debate was on the role of religion in the public square. You know, the whole separation of church and state thing, right? And both of these guys are very articulate. Alan Keyes is a Catholic and Alan Dershowitz is a Jewish atheist agnostic. He doesn't know if there's a God or not, right? But he leans that there isn't. And what happened was... There was a question from the audience after Dershowitz had gone on and on and on about how the Holocaust was wrong, how prohibiting abortion was wrong, how prohibiting same-sex marriage was wrong. He kept going on and on and on about how many things were wrong in society. And then a question came from the audience. Very simple question. One of the first questions asked. said, this is a question for Mr. Dershowitz. How do you know what is right? And Dershowitz said, that is a great question. That is a fantastic question. And then he went on to say, I don't know what's right. But I'm going to spend the rest of my life trying to figure it out. But I can tell you this. Those of you out there who think you know what's right, as soon as you think you know what's right, you've lost the ability to learn. You've lost the ability to grow. So don't think you know what's right. I don't know what's right, but I'm going to spend the rest of my life trying to find out. And that was it. Now, what's the problem with the statement? What's the problem? Didn't Dershowitz say the Holocaust was wrong? Didn't he say that prohibiting abortion was wrong? Didn't he say that prohibiting same-sex marriage was wrong? How can you know what is wrong unless you know what is right? You can't know what is not right unless you know what is right. So Dershowitz completely was befuddled by the question, even though all the things he kept talking about implied he knew what was right. Now, unfortunately, Keyes could have said, which he didn't, he could have said, how can he know what is absolutely unjust 
without knowing what is absolutely just. And this is one of the arguments the atheist brings up. The atheist brings up the fact that this can't be, or there can't be an all-good God if, if there's so much injustice in the world. In other words, there's evil in the world. So how can there be a good God? How can there be a good God if there's all this evil? This is what C.S. Lewis thought for many years. He said, there can't be a good God with all this evil. You know what conclusion he ultimately came to? Here's what C.S. Lewis said, and he wrote this in Mere Christianity. He said, as an atheist, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? You can't know injustice or injustice unless you know justice, right? And you can't know justice unless there's a God whose very nature is the standard of justice. So the argument against God by the atheist actually backfires. They're assuming there's a standard of justice to say this world is evil. Next point. Real moral disagreements imply an objective moral standard. If there is no objective moral standard, you can't say Mother Teresa was better than Hitler. You can't. In fact... Let's ask the question. How do you know who's right and who's wrong? Mother Teresa or Hitler? How do you know? Because of their actions. Right. You say Mother Teresa loved people and Hitler killed them. But how do you know it's right to love and wrong to kill? That's the question, right? Let's look at it a different way. How do you know which map of Scotland is better? Map A or map B? What's the only way you could know? You would have to see what? A real unchanging place called Scotland. And when you see that real unchanging unchanging place called Scotland, you can see that map A, while it's not perfect, is a better representation of the real Scotland than is map B. If Scotland does not exist, those two maps are meaningless, right? But since Scotland exists, we can see which map is closer. That's exactly what we do when we compare Mother Teresa and Hitler. Mother Teresa isn't the standard of good. Neither is Hitler. There's a standard outside of them by which we measure both of them. And we say Mother Teresa, why she wasn't perfect, lived up to the standard of rightness or goodness better than did Hitler. Now, what is this standard of rightness or goodness? This standard of rightness or goodness is God's very nature. It's unchanging. He, he is the standard of rightness. All right. Point four. How do we know there's an objective moral law? We wouldn't make excuses for doing wrong if there was no moral law. You ever notice when you do something wrong, you immediately start making excuses? You ever notice that? Like when you're caught in a lie. You go, well, gee, I didn't, you know, I'm sorry, but, you know, uh, it's never like, what's, what's wrong with lying? You don't say that. Right? You don't say, what? yeah, I lied, so what? Or, yeah, I stole your stuff, so? You don't say that, do you? You always come up with excuses. Why do you come up with excuses? Because you know you're not living up to the standard you ought to be living up to. Once again, nobody's written better on this than C.S. Lewis. Here's what Lewis wrote. He said, it seems then that we are forced to believe in a real right and wrong. First, human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way. Second, they do not, in fact, behave in that way. The truth is we believe in decency so much that we cannot bear to face the fact that we are breaking it. And consequently, we try to shift the responsibility. 
that the only thing that you comprise are comprised of are elements on the periodic table. That's the only thing that exists. The only thing that exists are physical things, right? Well, if only thing if the only thing that exists are physical things, elements on the periodic table, how can murder be wrong? You're just killing a conglomeration of elements on a periodic table. How is that wrong? It's not. And you, you can't, using the atheist worldview, you can't say anything's wrong and you ought not put anyone in jail. Why? Because they didn't really do it because they don't have free will. It's just chemical reactions going on in their brain. Right? So you might as well just ask, in the atheist materialist worldview, you might ask an atheist, was Hitler really wrong? Or did Hitler just have bad molecules? Right? You might ask them. If only thing that exists is material, just stuff on a periodic table now, where does morality come from? Morality is an immaterial entity, right? Where do the laws of logic come from? You have access to them, I have access to them, but they're not material. You know, you can't find them in your desk drawer. They're just out there. Where does love come from? Is love just a chemical reaction? Many in our society think so, don't they? It's just a chemical reaction. Is that it? What does love weigh? Ask him that. What does hate weigh? What are the laws of logic weigh? If everything must be on the periodic table, if all we are are elements, dirt, if that's all we are, how can these other things like logic, morality, the laws of mathematics, love, how can these things exist? They can't exist in that worldview. So atheists borrow from the Christian worldview. They can't justify where these things come from, but they know they exist. Now, that doesn't mean we won't run into moral issues or moral dilemmas. We will. Suppose you're in Nazi Germany and you're hiding Jews in your attic and one day you hear a knock on the door. Schnell! Come here! Hast du Juden here? You supposed to tell the truth to the Nazi? Or do you lie to protect the Jews in your attic? You're supposed to always tell the truth, right? Thou shalt not bear false witness. But if you lie, what happens to the Jews? So what do you do? Christians disagree, but I say you lie. Why? Because you have a higher duty to protect life than to tell truth to a murderer. Now, we've got to be careful with this because we can rationalize a whole bunch of things in our mind, right? I lied to protect myself because, you know, you can see where that goes, okay? But in an extreme situation like that, you can understand what the right thing to do is, okay? 
So when we say there is a moral law, we are saying there are certain things everybody intuitively understands that are right and certain things that are wrong. God has implanted that on your heart. They're based on his very nature. We're not saying every moral issue is easy. We're not saying that. We're saying on the big issues, everybody knows it's wrong to murder, it's wrong to steal, it's wrong to lie. We know that. It's wrong to rape. But when you're struck with a situation like the Nazis, you have a greater duty to protect life than you do to tell a murderer the truth. Okay, so that was a breakdown of the basic argument, uh, the moral argument for the existence of God. And a lot of that argument rests on moral intuition. And I can already hear the naysayers saying, well, you know, is that your evidence, your intuition? Why is one person's intuition better than another intuition? And I think that's a fair question until you dig a little bit deeper. And then you look around and you notice that everyone's intuition is pretty much the same on some of these big things. So the moral argument for the existence of God actually has a really, really low burden of proof. And that proof is, hey, as long as there is one thing that is truly, morally, objectively wrong, then God exists. So that forces the atheist into a corner to basically say, hey, there, nothing is actually really wrong. It's just a matter of preference. And if that's the view you're going to hold, that's when, again, I would say, hey, man, I want you to own it. I just want to make sure you know you're truly what you're getting into with that view and what flows from that view. Because I do think moral intuition is uh, a valid thing, right? Uh, and I want you to, to rewind to a concept we covered the last episode that deals with possibility versus probability, right? In a court of law, they talk about the, the burden of proof and, you know, you talk about beyond a reasonable doubt. You know, it doesn't have to be perfect. It has to be reasonable. And on some of these tougher questions, that's... That's how I want you to, to start to think about how to solve these things and come to a conclusion and get an answer. So just because something is possible doesn't mean it's probable. In last episode, you know, we played that clip from Andy Stanley and he talked about how he was at a stoplight and a girl in another car rear-ended his car and the, the police show up and there happened to be a, a dead possum on the side of the road and the policeman kind of made a joke, hey, did this possum cause this this accident? And, you know, it's kind of funny, but it's a great way to illustrate. You know, Andy Stanley said, yeah, you know, it's possible that this robotic possum got up and bashed this girl's car and then tried to run away and then his batteries ran out. And so, yeah, you can weave any kind of story you want. That doesn't mean it's realistic and as valid as anything else. You know, doesn't it make more sense that Someone just rear-ended the car. And by the same token, when you talk about moral intuition, I know at first you're like, that's kind of silly, man. But, but think about this. There's certain things that you have a low burden of proof, right? So, and, and this is going to sound silly, but I've actually talked to people that, that will bring this up and actually use this as if this is some sort of powerful argument. But, but they'll say, hey, how do you know that what we're doing here is real? How do you know about reality? How do you know that we're not just a brain in a vat with electrodes sticking out of a brain and some scientist is pumping 
you know, sensory data into this brain and you think you're walking around and you think you're breathing air and you think you're doing all this stuff where actually we're all just a brain in a vat and we're part of this huge experiment. It's kind of like the movie The Matrix where everything is just an illusion and all the sensory data is coming from an outside source instead of you actually experiencing it. You know, people implanting memories, you've only existed for five minutes, but they've implanted memories from your childhood and all that stuff. And it just seems like you've been around for years. Well, yeah, that <laughs> very, hey, is it possible? Well, I mean, I, I guess so. It, it makes for great sci-fi movies. But is that really a plausible explanation when you're trying to figure out reality? And I think that's about as silly as you can get. Like, you are actually sitting there making this argument. Now, to me, that that just seems silly on the surface, right? I am under no obligation to prove that I am not a brain in a vat with electrodes sticking out of it, right? At some point, you just got to say, what is more probable? And I think the same thing is going on with moral intuitions. I mean, when all these cultures all throughout history have the same basic moral code uh, there's something to be said about that right it's not like some cultures reward cowardice and say that lying is a good thing and murder is acceptable right all these cultures have very very similar things and before you say it because i know you may be thinking it you'd be like hey well what about like nazi germany they thought murder was okay they murdered six million jews you know the nazis did this and that And when you dig a little deeper, it actually plays more into my hands than into your hands. And here's why. Murder is wrong, but yet the Nazis were murdering Jews. Well, here's the thing. In their, on their view, they weren't people. They were below human. They were subhuman. They were animals. They were Uh, the equivalent of an insect or a termite, right? You gas termites, you don't gas people. So they're violating basic moral standards. And to do that, they what did they have to do? They basically had to justify it. So back in World War II, if you're just a German civilian and you happen to rape and murder another German civilian, there would be punishment and consequences because it is wrong even in that society to do those things. However, if you were a German and killed a Jew, that would be the equivalent of killing an insect and thus it's not murder. So they had to justify it, but murder was wrong. They just had to justify it that Jews were not in fact human. They were just chattel, you know, just property to do with what they may. Very similar thing going on with slavery back in this country. If you put a slave in a cage and beat a slave and mistreated a slave, that would be no different than someone beating a dog, putting a dog in a cage, uh, things like that. Yes, it is actually wrong. If if a slave owner did that to a, a white person, there would be repercussions. But since they did it to a slave, it was all good. And the reason it was all good and not punishable by the law back then is because the slaves were considered subhuman. So there was a justification going on there. And if you don't believe in absolute morals, uh, here's the other kicker. And here's the other thing I want you to own. The only other option is like morality is, you know, either a social contract or it's it's by popular votes. So if society votes that killing Jews is okay and slavery is okay, 
then guess what? It is morally okay. So if that's your view, I want you to own it and say, you know what? (laughs) Hey, back before uh, the Civil War, owning slaves in slavery was morally okay. And now these days, it's not. So I, I don't know, you know, what is it about the passage of time that makes uh, a given action, say slavery, morally okay in one time period and then morally despicable in another time period? I, I just don't get what the passage of time would have anything to do with that question. I mean, isn't it just easier to say that slavery is and always will be wrong? And a certain society just was mistaken on that view at that time. They just they just got it wrong. Because your only other option is to say, hey, whatever the law is, eh, it's all good by me. So to further drive home that concept, we're going to play one other clip. It's from a book called Stealing from God. And it basically illustrates some of the things that I just went over. I'm sure it's going to do a more convincing job than I just did. But this book is, is written by by Frank Turk. You, you, <laughs> if you can figure it out, I'm... I'm a big fan of this, the way he um, thinks and especially the way he communicates. But this clip starts off with a very powerfully emotional story, but it will really start to, to make you think about if morals are objective or not. So you've got the emotional side of things. And then at the end, he talks about a, a debate against uh, somebody where they discuss objective morals and where they come from and if it's up to popular vote or who determines morality. And just like the clip with, with Kokel and his debate, man, at some point, I, I don't think it's the skill as much as the worldview that you hold. And I, I hope you start to see like when some of these smart people are making ridiculous statements, that's, that's kind of a red flag. Again, <laughs> if you have too many red flags... I want you to own those red flags, but I also want you to consider maybe abandoning sides and switching sides. So anyway, check this out. And then after that, we are going to attempt to answer the single most difficult question that atheists pose to theists. But for now, let's listen to this clip. You can know what a book says while denying there's an author, but there would be no book to know unless there was an author. Likewise, atheists can know objective morality while denying God exists, but there would be no objective morality unless God exists. An hour ago, your seven-year-old daughter walked out of your front door on her way to a friend's house across the street. You've lived there for years. It's a safe neighborhood. At least you think so. Honey, where's Megan? She's over at the... No, she's not. They haven't seen her. You call everyone in the neighborhood, but no one else has seen her either. Your mind flashes immediately to abduction, every parent's worst fear. You can't delay for a second. If she's been abducted, she might be being dragged away at a mile a minute. And if this is a sexual abduction, her fate is unspeakable. When the police arrive, the entire neighborhood is mobilized. You join the police and your neighbors to search parks, trash bins, and houses. Police dogs attempt to follow Megan's scent. Everyone is engaged. Even the normally reclusive man across the street hands out the flyers you hastily made that display pictures of your precious daughter. Your frantic search persists on into the night without a whiff of a lead. Then, after 23 hours, police search the home of that reclusive man across the street who happens to be living with two other men. When the police do their background checks, they discover that all three men are convicted sex offenders. One of them was once a member of the Big Brother organization, which gave him access to young boys to molest. Another served time for sodomizing a five-year-old girl. And the man handing out your flyers? He served ten years in prison for molesting and then strangling a seven-year-old girl nearly to death thirteen years ago. His name is Jesse. The judge at his trial stated that Jesse constitutes a danger to the public at large and to young children in particular. What? Until now, you knew none of this. Jesse, where is she? Where is she? The police need to hold you back and then keep you away to conduct a proper interrogation. As they persist in their questioning, they learn that Jesse's two roommates can prove that they were not in the neighborhood yesterday when Megan disappeared. But Jesse cannot. He is fidgeting, 
pacing, and chain-smoking. Getting nowhere with Jesse, the police decide to call in the detective who arrested him thirteen years ago. Jesse seems relieved to see a familiar face. Where is she, Jesse? Within a few hours, the detective gets Jesse to confess to the abduction. Jesse admits that he lured your daughter into his house by offering to let her pet his new puppy. After he raped her, Jesse said he had to strangle her because he was afraid that she would tell you. He agrees to take the police to the park where he dumped her body. On the way there, Jesse expresses no sorrow for murdering your daughter. He is only concerned with how much time he will get. When they get there, police realize that she fought back. The bite mark on Jesse's hand is from your daughter. Later, they match DNA found on her body to Jesse. I've told this story as if it happened to you because this type of evil is an abstraction for most of us. Tragically, it's not an abstraction for Richard and Maureen Kenka. On July 29, 1994, Jesse Timendekis committed an abominable act against their daughter. You may not have heard of the details of this crime, but you probably have heard of the legislation that resulted from it. It's called Megan's Law. Megan's Law requires that local communities be informed when a sex offender moves into town. The Kankas, who championed that law, also seek to educate parents and their children about danger all around them. Featured on their website is this warning for children. Nice people can do bad things. Just because someone is nice, it doesn't mean that they are safe. Tim Andekas was sentenced to death in 1997, but his sentence was commuted to life in prison without parole when New Jersey abolished the death penalty. However, no justice has come in many similar cases. One three-year study of 562 child murders showed that 35% of them went unsolved. Rape, murder, and the Nazis. Does justice really exist? Imagine being the parent of a murdered child whose killer is still on the loose. Your horror is compounded by continued injustice. What if he is never caught? Many are never caught. If there is no God and no afterlife, then no justice will ever be done. Thousands of pedophiles who have committed murder over the years will never get justice. They will go to their graves unpunished. Too bad, said Richard Dawkins in one of his debates with John Lennox. Just because we wish there was ultimate justice doesn't mean there is. True. But if justice doesn't exist, then neither does injustice. After all, something can't be not right unless something really is right. If God doesn't exist, and we're merely the mindless, purposeless products of biological evolution, then morality is subjective, which means that the rape and murder of your child isn't really unjust. If you think it is, then that's just your opinion. Dawkins admitted this in an interview with radio host Justin Brierley. Let's listen in after Dawkins maintained that our sense of morality is an outcome of the evolutionary process. Brierley, when you make a value judgment, don't you immediately step yourself outside of this evolutionary process and say that the reason this is good is that it's good, and you don't have any way to stand on that statement? Dawkins, my value judgment itself could come from my evolutionary past. Brierley, so, therefore, it's just as random in a sense as any product of evolution. Dawkins, you could say that. Nothing about it makes it more probable that there is anything supernatural. Brierley, ultimately, your belief that rape is wrong is as arbitrary as the fact that we've evolved five fingers rather than six? Dawkins, you could say that, yeah. So, according to Richard Dawkins, rape isn't really wrong, and it's just arbitrary that you believe so. Say that to Richard and Maureen Kanka, or anyone who has lost a little girl to rape and murder. Or let me ask you, do you think the murder of your child or any child would be nothing more than an instance of someone acting unfashionably? Would it have no more moral significance than wearing white after Labor Day? That's what you need to believe if you want to be a consistent atheist. You need to suppress your most basic moral intuitions, including that rape and murder are objectively wrong, because without God, there is no objective, unchanging standard of morality. According to atheism, how could it be otherwise? All of your thoughts and behaviors are merely the result of blind forces. Justice, morality, and free will don't really exist. Dawkins puts it this way. In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, and other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason to it, nor any justice. 
The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. That means Jesse Timendakis and every other murderous pedophile just dance to the music of their DNA. So you really would have no grounds to condemn such a person if he murdered your daughter. He had no control over it. He was not only born that way, he lives that way. A biological robot, whose every action is wholly determined by natural causes. In order to hold people morally responsible for their actions, atheists need to steal free will and morality from God. They have to steal such truths to have any chance at peace and goodness. Imagine a society that did not hold people morally responsible for their actions. There would be no civilization. The moral implications of atheism are unlivable. Dawkins actually recognizes this when he categorically rejects Darwinian survival of the fittest ethics. Calling the Darwinian morality ruthless, Dr. Dawkins told radio host Michael Medved, I've always said that I am a passionate anti-Darwinian when it comes to the way we should organize our lives and our morality. He said, We want to avoid basing our society on Darwinian principles. So, despite claiming that we just dance to our DNA, Dawkins introduces a moral code by saying we should not follow our DNA. Consistency is not his strong point. If you follow Darwinian principles consistently, you get the kind of moral outworking that James Rachels suggests. Rachels is the author of Created from Animals, The Moral Implications of Darwinism. He defends the Darwinian view that the human species has no more inherent value than any other species. Speaking of the mentally handicapped, Rachels writes, What are we to say about them? The natural conclusion, according to the doctrine we are considering, Darwinism, would be that their status is that of mere animals. And perhaps we should go on to conclude that they may be used as non-human animals are used, perhaps as laboratory subjects or as food. What? Suggesting we use the mentally handicapped people as lab rats or for food? He's just being consistent with a Darwinistic worldview. According to an atheistic view of reality, a cannibal is merely rearranging the molecules of his victim. Atheists have no means to condemn Nazi-like experiments because there is no objective moral standard in an atheistic Darwinian world. You think I'm making all this up, don't you? Who could believe there's nothing really wrong with such horrible acts? Atheists. Not just Richard Dawkins and James Rachels, but even the president of American Atheists, David Silverman. During my debate with Mr. Silverman, he claimed that it was immoral to deny homosexuals the opportunity to adopt children from orphanages. But a little bit later, he asserted that there is no objective morality. All morality is relative. Seeing the contradiction, I asked him a question. Here is our exchange. Turek. David, you were just talking about leaving a kid in an orphanage rather than putting him with a gay couple as immoral. I thought you just told us that there is no such thing as objective morality. Is it immoral or you just don't like it? Silverman. No, I said there was no such thing as objective morality. I said all morality is relative. Turek. So why are you objecting to somebody who doesn't want to put a kid with a homosexual couple then? Why are you objecting to that if there is no... Silverman, interrupting. We have the right to object. We are always doing that, okay? We are always making these choices. It's not wrong to say that I'm making my independent choices, independent of any other book or any other holy book. We all make the same moral choices. I find it wholly immoral. Turek. According to what standard? Your own standard? Silverman. According to my standard, yes. Turek. Oh, well, that's okay, so... Silverman. That's exactly the same way you do it. Turek. Okay, but are you condemning somebody else for having a different relative standard than you? Silverman. No. I'm saying we all have to take responsibility for our moral judgments. We are all making those decisions in real time just like you are. For the same reason that you're not going into Leviticus and you're not saying, okay, let's kill the gays, that's immoral to you and me. We're making that relative moral decision. You're supporting your relative moral decision with other Bible quotes that you're finding. Turek. But you're confusing the decision with the existence of a moral standard. Are you saying that there is no moral standard or that there is a standard, objective outside of humanity, which we should obey? Silverman. There is no objective moral standard. We are responsible for our own actions. Turek. Responsible to who? Silverman. To ourselves and to our society. Turek. 
Which society? Mother Teresa's or Hitler's? Silverman. The society in which we live? Yes, this is not an easy question. Turek. So at Nuremberg, then, we really had no right to convict the Nazis for obeying their government. Silverman. We as a world society judge our criminals, and we judge them as we see fit. Turek. I know we judge them. So you're saying we just judge them based on our preferences? You know in some cultures they take care of their babies, in other cultures they eat their babies. Which do you prefer? Silverman. I prefer the one where they take care of their babies. I also prefer the ones where the Nazis don't do terrible things under the name of God. Turek. But it's just a preference. Silverman. Yes, it's an opinion. Turek. Well, if it's just an opinion, I don't know why you condemn a Christian couple for not wanting to put a baby with a homosexual, because that's just their morality, that they have every right to express themselves, don't they? Silverman. They have every right to do it. I'm saying it's a wholly immoral position. Turek. According to who? Silverman. According to me. Turek. Well, okay, that's just David Silverman. Silverman. Of course, that's all according to us. We all make our own moral decisions. The only difference between you and me is that I take responsibility for my moral decisions, and you justify your moral decisions by finding a passage in the Bible that matches your moral decisions and saying, Aha, it's objective morality. Turek. Well, if there is no objective morality, then we have... It's even hard to talk this way because we say we have no right, but that implies a moral standard too. Silverman. No, we have a societal right. Turek. According to you? Silverman. According to the government that we create. Turek. Okay, well, then we have no real way to condemn the Nazis for what they did. Silverman. The hard answer is, you're correct. The hard answer is, it is a matter of opinion. The hard answer is, they thought they were doing objective good. They did. So we condemn them as a society, but you know we do this all the time. Turek. Yeah, they thought they were doing good, but they really weren't according to a standard. But the only way you could know whether they were really... Silverman. According to whose standard? Turek. The unchanging objective moral standard that is God's nature. Silverman. They did it under the name of God. Turek. Well, there's a lot of people that... You don't judge a philosophy or religion by its abuse, David. Jesus never said that we ought to go kill the Jews, quite obviously. He was a Jew himself. You should know that. Silverman, smiling. Yeah. Turek. So because people have abused religion doesn't mean the religion is false. Silverman. The fact that people have abused religion shows you that morality is relative. If it was objective, you couldn't abuse it. Turek. No, you're confusing sociology with morality. Sociology is how people behave. Morality is how they ought to behave. We all ought to behave a certain way, but we fail to. By the way, that's why we need a savior. In this exchange, David is confusing how we know the moral standard, epistemology, with the existence of a moral standard, ontology. He is also confusing how people behave, sociology, with how they ought to behave, morality. But one thing that David seems not confused about is that morality is relative. He actually asserted that eating babies isn't really immoral. It's just a matter of opinion. Ditto the Holocaust. The fact that he says this as a Jew himself shows the ridiculous extent to which some atheists will go to maintain their atheism. If David comes to his senses and wants to take back his outlandish assertion that eating babies and murdering six million Jews is just a matter of opinion, he would have to appeal to an unchanging, authoritative standard outside of himself. But that's exactly what atheists don't have. They have molecules. They don't have God. Morality isn't made of molecules. What does justice weigh? What is the chemical composition of courage? How much hydrogen is in the honesty molecule? Did Hitler just have bad molecules? These are absurd questions, because moral standards aren't made of molecules. To have an unchanging objective standard of justice, you don't need molecules. You need an objective, unchanging judge who has supreme authority. Humans can't provide that. Human beings are changeable and do not hold absolute authority over other human beings. You need God for that. If there is no God above Hitler and every other human, who says murder is wrong? That's why when David appealed to society as his moral standard, I asked him, which society, Mother Teresa's or Hitler's? Society is just a collection of humans, and one collection may assert different moral positions than others, which is why we had World War II in the first place. 
Of course, even if the Nazis had won World War II and brainwashed everyone to believe that murdering Jews was right, that would not make it right. Morality is not determined by majority vote. In fact, morality is not determined at all. People don't determine the right thing to do. They discover it. In other words, an objective moral value is right even if everyone thinks it's wrong. Since objective morality is grounded in the object known as God's nature, it is unchangeable and authoritative. It is unaffected by our opinions about it. In order to judge between competing societies, there must be this objective standard beyond those societies and beyond humanity. Without that unchanging objective standard, all moral questions are reduced to human opinion, nearly 7 billion human opinions. That's all you're left with. Morality is either objective or it's not. There is no third alternative. It's either objective in an unchanging God or a matter of opinion in 7 billion changing subjects. David acknowledged it was a hard answer to say that the Nazis were not really wrong. But it's only hard because he's suppressing his most basic moral intuitions. He's refusing to call evil what it is in order to maintain his atheism. Objective moral values are not hard to know. For some, they are just hard to accept. I am not saying that you have to believe in God to be a good person or that atheists like David Silverman are immoral people. David seems like a very nice man. And some atheists live more moral lives than many Christians. I am also not saying that atheists don't know morality or that you need the Bible to know basic right and wrong. Everyone knows basic right and wrong whether they believe in God or have the Bible or not. In fact, that's exactly what the Bible teaches. See Romans 2, 14 and 15. What I am saying is that atheists can't justify morality. They can act morally and judge some actions as being moral and others immoral, as David Silverman does, but they can provide no objective basis for those judgments. Whether it's the Holocaust, raping and murdering children, atheists have no objective standard by which to judge any of it. Let me go out on a limb and suggest that if your worldview requires you to believe that raping children, murdering children, eating children, and slaughtering six million innocent people is just a matter of opinion, then you have the wrong worldview. Okay, there was a lot of good stuff in that clip, but I really want to focus in on the last thing that was mentioned, you know, where he goes, I'm really going to go out on a limb here. You know, obviously that's a sarcastic <laughs> comment, but let me go out on a limb. If you have a worldview that says that raping or murdering children or eating children or slaughtering six million people in the Holocaust is just a personal preference, then maybe that's an indication that you have the wrong worldview. And the interesting thing to me is, is I'll get into intellectual discussions about this and people will defend this thing up and down tooth and nail to the very end that morality is relative. They'll deny any sort of absolute standard. But this is only in the context of a one-on-one -on -one discussion where the end game leads, right? Because as soon as someone admits there's objective morality, they've taken a huge step toward, if not fully toward uh, a creator and a moral law giver. And they just do not want to take that step. Uh, there's a whole bunch of reasons. I think it's more emotional reasons than intellectual ones. But the point is, is that people will fight this in a discussion only. However, if you were to look on their Facebook page or, you know, if you could magically follow them around with a camera like in a reality TV show, you would see all the things they do and say and how they act point to the fact that they believe there is a right way to act and there is a moral standard. And when someone wrongs them, they're the first people to point it out. So my main point is it's it's impossible to hold this position and act consistently within your own worldview. You're welcome to hold it. You're welcome to hold that there is no morality and act as if there is, but you are incredibly inconsistent. But now we're, we're going to talk about a question that 
is usually considered the hardest and the most difficult question to answer if you are a theist, and that is the problem of evil. And it's really pertinent to our discussion since evil is a moral question and we've been talking about morality the whole show. So I mentioned a a syllogism before, which is basically premises and conclusions. And here is your kind of your vanilla problem of evil argument uh, as stated in a syllogism, right? So premise number one, right? A God that is all powerful would be able to prevent evil and suffering. Premise number two, a God that is all loving wouldn't want evil and suffering to happen and would take the needed actions to stop it. Premise number four, evil and suffering still continue to happen. Therefore, conclusion, there is not an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God that can exist simultaneously while all this suffering and evil exists. So that's the argument in a nutshell. And we are going to talk about that and address that. And uh, I'm going <laughs> to circle, make a full circle back to the last episode where we mentioned Steven Seagal. So here we go. This action star from the 80s. How is he going to help us out? Well, Steven Seagal practiced a martial art known as Aikido. And what Aikido was is you would use your own opponent's weight or strength against them to the point where it actually hurt them. And if you want to see that in action, just look at any of the old movie clips from Steven Seagal movies. But that's what we're going to do right now with the problem of evil. And you'll realize that this is actually not a problem for the theist. It becomes an amazing, I would say almost insurmountable issue for the atheist to to deal with because implicit in all of those statements is the fact that evil does exist and what best explains the existence of that evil. So we're going to play a clip here in a little bit that answers that whole thing. Really short clip. It's really to the point. I think it, it'll help things out a lot and shed a lot of light on how to look at this question. But before I do that, I need to talk a little bit about there. there's two issues when it comes to this, this question, the problem of evil. Uh, What we're talking about now is the intellectual problem of evil. Uh, There is also a very real emotional problem of evil. And I I do not want to downplay that. And I I need to state that um, there's a lot of uncomfortable and bad and, yes, evil things that happen to people. And in the midst of those things, people often... I don't know, cry out in frustration, like, why me? Why would God allow this to happen to me? If there is a God, why would this happen? Uh, usually it's when a loved one uh, is hurt, injured, or, you know, taken, their life is taken. And that is a very sad situation when that happens. And I'm just going to tell you up front, there is no amount of intellectual answers that will take away that pain. A person could give the most eloquent, intellectually satisfying answer to this problem, and that pain will still be there. So if you ever happen to get into a discussion on this topic, just kind of heads up, you know, make sure uh, when you're talking about this, a lot of times people just want a shoulder to cry on and they want somebody to hug them or say that they care or, you know, just that you're there for them. Because again, no answer is going to take away that pain. But we're specifically talking about the intellectual problem of evil and how atheists think this is a big problem for the theist. Well, turns out that this is a huge, huge, massive problem 
for a worldview that says that there is no God. So let's roll this clip and explore this topic a little more. This next bad argument is going to really floor some of you. That is, you're going to be really surprised about it. And it's a little bit of a tricky one. So I'm going to try to walk through it slowly, but I think it's going to become clear how powerful this can be. What do you think, if I were to ask you, given your survey of complaints against theism or Christianity, the kinds of arguments that people raise, what would you say is the most persistent, pernicious, frequently raised objection against the existence of God? The problem of evil. Absolutely. In other words, we can take the most powerful argument people raise against Christianity and theism in general, and we can show that it actually makes our point. Well, how does it do that? What has to be true for the argument, the complaint itself, to get some traction? Here's what has to be true. There has to be evil in the world, right? Because that's what people are complaining about. How could there be a good, powerful God when there is so much evil in the world? Now, if there's no evil in the world, then this argument doesn't work. Is that correct? There are two things that we learn from the observation that evil is real. It's a real part of the world. First thing is that relativists cannot raise this objection. Now, a relativist, the way I'm using the term, is someone who does not believe in objective or absolute right and wrong. You run into these people all the time. They're the kind of people who say, who are you to push your morality on me? Who are you to tell me what's right or wrong? That may be wrong for you, but it doesn't mean it's wrong for me. What they're invoking here is a very popular idea that there is no right and wrong. You have your belief, you have your belief, you have your belief. It's all part of the relativistic scheme of things. There is no standard that stands outside of us that judges some behavior good and some behavior bad. Now, you understand that kind of complaint. It's it's your basic run-of-the-mill relativism. And our culture is absolutely filled to the brim with knee-jerk relativists. They're all over the beach here. You know, you try to tell them about right and wrong, and they're, they're, they're in your face. Okay? But it's these same people that will often raise this argument against the existence of God, that there is so much evil in the world. Listen, do you realize that if relativism is true, that is, there is no objective right and wrong, then there is no evil in the world. If there is no objective standards, then there can't be any violation of those standards. That's like saying somebody broke the rules in a game that has no rules. I actually was on the corner of Pier Avenue and Pacific Coast Highway at a restaurant that has long since ceased to be there, eating a plate of spaghetti or something. It just stands out vividly in my memory having a discussion with a waitress on this very issue. Because in the first half of the conversation, she was denying there's any objective morality. Of course, that's convenient because the notion of sin, which is central to Christian thinking, and of course makes it clear that we need a savior from sin, the notion of sin requires that there be an objective right and wrong, in which sin is a violation of objective right, and therefore there's guilt. Of course, people don't like that. 
And so what they try to do is just to deny that there is this standard. But the minute you deny that there is a standard of right and wrong, then evil disappears. So you can't very well go in the next breath, which this waitress did, and then complain about the problem of evil in the world when the comments that you have just made disqualify the concept of objective evil. Everybody with me on this one? This this can be kind of hard to get. So with this objection, relativists can't play because it's it's disingenuous to their own views. They, they, They can have their cake and eat it too. In a relativistic worldview, you can't get traction for this objection. It's kind of like somebody saying, why doesn't the government do something about the problem of all those elephants? You say, well, what what elephants are you talking about? He says, the elephants in my own imagination. And you're going to probably say, well, if the elephants are in your own imagination, I don't know what the government's going to be able to do about it, right? Now, by parallel, the person is saying, how could there be a God when there's so much evil? And then you say, well, what evil do you have in mind? He says, the evil in my own imagination. Well, if it's in your own imagination, stop imagining it, and there won't be any problem. You see the point? Maybe that's not such a good illustration. I don't know. (laughs) It's like a person said, I can't believe in God. Why not? Brussels sprouts. (laughs) Say, Brussels sprouts? What's the problem there? Do you ever taste those things? They're disgusting. (laughs) I said, well, I happen to agree with your understanding about the disgusting taste of Brussels sprouts, but I don't see why that has anything to do with the existence of God. And he says, I cannot believe in the existence of God because that God would allow something in the world that is distasteful to me. Now, is that a shallow objection? Yes, I think so. But that's what the objection amounts to coming from a relativist. Because to a relativist, right or wrong, are just expressions of personal tastes. Okay, there you go. That is the final parting shot. And now you know where the name of this episode came from. Uh, Brussels sprouts. I really want you to really think about that. And it's a really easy way to remember the conundrum that uh, atheists can get into. And again, if you are an atheist, I just want you to know the shortcomings of your view. And and even if you're a theist, I want you to try and explore those shortcomings as well. But that's the big one, right? If you're an atheist, you, you have two choices when it comes to morality. Either it's objective or it's not. Like, that's it, period. If it is objective, that basically means that atheism is false and atheism must be abandoned. Uh, but if, if it's not objective, that means it has to be subjective or relative. All of that can be wrapped up into the, into the equation of, hey, I don't like Brussels sprouts. I, I cannot believe in a God that would make something so disgusting as Brussels sprouts. So to me, that just seems so outrageous that not liking Brussels sprouts is the same thing as not liking rape or not liking murder. They just seem to be different things. It seems clearly obvious that one is a preference and one is not. You know, you can like or not like Brussels sprouts, but if you if you like murder, something's wrong with you and you're breaking a moral code that seems so incredibly obvious. But hey, if you feel it's personal preference, then giddy up, own it. So now that's a that's a couple big questions. First, if you're an atheist, how do you answer that question? Uh, 
Do you truly think there is no difference between disliking Brussels sprouts and disliking uh, murder? And again, the other question from the the last episode, uh, we we still haven't touched on it, but I want you to kind of keep that in the back of your head. Like, hey, where did this Christian worldview come from? I mean, how how did, at what point in history did people start believing someone uh, was actually raised from the dead? I'm not saying you have to believe it. I'm just asking you to figure out how that how that actually came about. Just just something to think about. And uh, that's it. That's going to wrap up the show. Uh, I've actually got some extra credit. You can stick around if you're interested. It is uh, Greg Kokel takes a phone call from a very smart atheist, and they have a very friendly conversation on this topic of where morality comes from and if it can be uh, determined from some source other than God. And it's a very friendly and interesting conversation that you are welcome to stick around to and listen. So there you go. Otherwise, we will catch you on the next episode. And I appreciate you guys listening. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening. We hope you found a few nuggets of wisdom that you can apply to your life. Until next time, take action. Keep hacking and stacking your way to success. There is nothing wrong with your mobile device. You are venturing into deeper meaning and higher learning. It's time for extra credit. Okay, thanks for sticking around for extra credit. I've got maybe, I think it's about 10, 11 minute clip for you on a pretty interesting phone call in which Greg Kokel fields a call from an atheist regarding the question of where morality comes from. And that's that's kind of the thing I like about his show is he will take all comers and he will defend his position. And if his position is incorrect, he will uh, he will change his position. And it's kind of saddening that that's not the way things are with everyone. I mean, you'll notice in this call, it's kind of it's really calm. It's kind of boring. Uh, there There isn't actually any resolution at the end. You can tell it's just um, two people in the caller in particular trying to wrestle through um, and make sense of some of these issues. And they use language and talk in a way that most everyday people do not talk. And to some, it may be kind of boring. Uh, I mean, I'm kind of dork when it comes to this stuff. It's kind of like, I don't know if you've ever taken up a new sport and it just doesn't seem to make sense. And then you sort of understand the ground rules and then you can appreciate it a little bit more. Uh, that's how I feel when I hear some of these conversations. But it's one thing to not understand a sport and not be interested. It, it's an entirely different thing to not understand how to think and how to talk to people. And what's really discouraging is not that everyday normal people don't really enter into conversations like that. I mean, I kind of understand that. But uh, when you see the leaders of the country and politicians that are just making basic fundamental mistakes in logic and thinking and uh, most of the things that you see on TV are name calling, don't really address the issue, uh, never give credit for the other side even if they make a good point. In the context of that insanity, uh, a phone call like this is, is kind of refreshing to hear uh, people that completely disagree on a given subject uh, but yet they go back and forth and they try to find common ground and, you know, hopefully they try and find a solution. You know, just because some things are hard, 
to figure out and sometimes people don't agree doesn't mean that there isn't in fact a solution so these are the kind of things that i appreciate uh people really trying to work through some hard issues and that's that's kind of what i want you guys to do to, to think about these harder questions and try and answer them you know most people around you won't even ask the question let alone try to answer them so the fact that you're still listening to the show i think says a lot about you so anyway we'll roll this clip uh, enjoy the extra credit and we'll see you next time let's go to gainesville for our first caller ian welcome to the show how you doing uh, very well, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Kokel, for having me. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Glad you called. Um, so last week I was listening to your show, the first time I'd ever listened to it, and you made some some points about if uh, where does morality come from, and this week you're talking exactly about what I wanted to talk about. Okay. Thank you very much. Sure. Um, so I would agree with you that uh, objective morality runs into a problem because at best, you're going to make claims like I have a, a moral objection to whatever, and until you uh, can communicate in a language that both parties understand, i.e., if I'm talking to you, I have to talk to you using your understanding of morality to have it make sense to you. Otherwise, I'm just saying, I am morally outraged. It doesn't make sense otherwise. Um, however, how you can kind of unify a perspective of objective morality is by having a common goal. So if we all decide together that we want to live in a society wherein, you know, there's fewer traffic accidents and people follow the rules and, mm-hmm. you know, I can live in... Now that we have a goal in mind, now we can use uh, a, an objective understanding um, to accomplish that goal within... Yeah. The, yes, I know, agree. I agree. Um, you're talking about consequentialism now, and consequentialism is a little different than morality. Over the, there are times when they overlap, but I, I'll let you finish, and then I'll respond more thoroughly. Sure. Unless um, you had more, if you didn't have more to say. No. Uh, well, that's, it's just to say that because people are deciding what it is that our, our goal happens to be, mm-hmm. you know, then that's a subjective. Morality. It's not. It's not. In a classical sense, it's not objective, because the morality is not coming from an, an outside source. It's we, the community, is deciding yeah. what our goal has to be. I would say, in a classical sense, it, it, what you just described is not even morality. What it is is simply an agreement about how to accomplish an end most effectively. And the end can be anything in, in, involved. Uh, generally, when the end is human flourishing, it enters into the area of morality, but then it is not just a collectivist notion. That is, well, whatever we decide is what we think is best for human flourishing. Uh, let me give you some illustration just to make the distinction between the two here. I, and I had a call about a month ago uh, on this same thing, where one atheist said he can ground uh, morality, or you can get, you can get uh, you, an is an ought from an is, and basically he was talking about accomplishing some goal. And he said, if you really want to, uh, I'm now I don't remember what it was, but I'm, let me just see if I can think up a, a, a good example. Since I was fishing last week, um, let me let me use it this way: if you really want to catch more fish, then you have to use a stronger fishing line because if you use a thread, the fish are going to break off, and you're not and you're not going to get any fish. So since we all want to catch more fish to eat, then we, and watch my word here, we ought 
to use a stronger fishing line. And uh, now the ought there is not a moral ought. It isn't like we're morally obliged to do it. It's a consequentialist ought. And what I mean by that is if we want to get the consequence we're after, then this is the appropriate means to accomplish that. All right. So we certainly can talk about good in that sense and and tie it to kind of a, a corporate goal like you just described. But when you look at the things that people talk about morally good and bad, it's really clear that there's a whole bunch of things that are not that consequentialist kind of enterprise when when the hit when when hitler for example uh, or take any kind of uh, ethnic cleansing um because maybe hitler's too strong of a you know example but just take any kind of ethnic cleansing i worked with cambodians in 1982 after the cambodian holocaust with the khmer rouge you know there was a kind of cleansing going on there you know but um in their view they were cleansing for the good of society all right and if you get rid of one kind of person and you keep the other kind of person then a certain type of flourishing will accomplish will be accomplished so you could have argued then that as long as their means killing people of a certain sort accomplish their end getting a better society according to their definition then they were doing a good thing by the definition that you were offering but clearly even if that were the case then people could say yes but what they were doing wasn't good and now we're using the word in a different sense, in a in a moral sense, that regardless of how utilitarian it was to a particular end, it still wasn't a morally good thing. And that's the kind of thing that needs explaining, not these other, in a sense, consequentialist notions about how do you get the end you want to get. Uh, this is a classical me- classic means-to-end issue. And there are some ends that are not justified by the means that are employed to get there, and that's where the genuine moral equation comes in. Okay, well, using the, the example of the Khmer Rouge, right, mm-hmm. what was it about the ethnic minority... That was that was the justification for for the clean, for the cleansing. Well, the, it, it, oh, did you want me to answer that? Well, it it was just to say that really I it, know it the answer. So, it wasn't a it, it was to establish an enemy uh, that the group can then attack to solidify the group so that the Khmer Rouge obtained power. It wasn't. No, that, that isn't the reason. Khmer Rouge already okay. had power. Uh, there was an ideological thing going on, and so they're trying to establish a, an agrarian communist revolution with rice as the monetary base, and everybody's out of the cities. And so if you, and in order to, to accomplish this, you had to produce a certain type of ideologically sound person, a kind of politically correct person, basically. And those who were opposed to that enterprise were just executed. And so the idea was to get uh, ideological unanimity to accomplish the goal that they had for a great Khmer Empire that uh, that would uh, you know that would con- prosper now according to these communist uh, ideas, and uh, in, w- one could argue that the methods that they used were appropriate to that end, but that doesn't make them they were good to that end, but that doesn't make them morally right. That would be my point. I, I understand your point. Um, it's just to say that what that is. Uh, first of all, that's the that's the opinion of of one person. I want to stay in power, and I, I would still argue that 
the reason why he executed people as opposed to just letting people go was to solidify that power. But well, you, I, well, uh, this is a matter of fact here. So I just want to know: are, are, are you a student of that period of time and those people and what happened to them that you could say this, or are you just uh, speculating? Um, it's I, I'm a student of of history and not I know about this particular time period and these these events. You know, I'm not. It's just to say that that's how you gain control and that's how you hold control. It doesn't it doesn't really work to be to be a soft touch and let people go. No, I understand but, that, but uh, okay, well then well, that's, that's a side issue. But it in, is in somewhat. Event. I'm just a little uncomfortable with the kind of dismissal because you have okay. a prior understanding of what was going on there, even when you talk to somebody who knows something about the details of it. But that's okay. Go ahead. Okay. Well, well my apologies. But um, in any event... Uh, You're right. It isn't the main point. The main point, right. are we talking about simply a consequentialist issue of good here, which is what you seem to be developing, or are we talking about a deep, a genuine morality that regardless of whether the end is accomplished in an efficient way, there are some ends that are just plain old wrong? Well, let me, uh, let me try another way. Okay. I would say that there are, how, how many different sects of Christianity are there? Well, it depends how you divide them up, but uh, more than one, that's for sure. More than one. Okay, so... If you're talking uh, about denominations or broadly put, go ahead. Right. Um, so each of those those groups have an understanding of what they're... how best to praise God, mm-hmm. how best to interpret, you know, the Scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 so the, the goal all happens to be the same, but how they, they represent the goal... Uh, how they, they carry it out might be a little bit different in terms. And so each group has their own personal understanding of morality as mm. a result of that. Well, I, right. I, I wouldn't say they have their own personal understanding of morality. They have a d- different understanding of way of accomplishing the goal, but that doesn't answer okay. the question of whether the goal is accomplished or not. There are lots of people who believe in God and they're trying to pursue God in right. their own way. It mm. doesn't follow from that that they're all equally legitimate and right and there is no right way to do it. It could be that a lot of people who are pursuing God, and even Christians in their own particular way, end up not getting to God at all because there is a correct way to do it within limits and an incorrect, and they might be doing it the incorrect way. I mean, that certainly is possible. There may be an absolute truth with regards to God and what he wants, just like there may be an absolute truth with regards to morality. Well, and that's that's kind of the crux of it, is how do you know... Uh, what is is actually accomplishing that goal of communing with God? Okay, well, that is a completely different question, you know, and this, what this show in general is given to demonstrate, but, and there are lots of arguments I could put on the table, we don't mm-hmm. have time for that right now, but just because you haven't answered the question, how do you know, doesn't mean that we're justified in just dismissing the the, the idea that there is a thing to know, that there is a right answer. Um, the, my, my point last week had to do with relativism, right. and if relativism, if, 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 if relativism is true, well, then there is no right answers to any of those things, and one person's answer is as good as the other, uh, right. insofar as they're simply expressing their own preferences. But the, the, the real question is, based on what we know about reality, 
is it the case that one that that nobody's there is no objective morality? I, I don't think that's the case. By the same token, there are lots. I think there's a state of affairs as, as far as the physical world is concerned, and science is meant to figure that out. But scientists disagree all the time on things. That doesn't mean that there is no way that the world is simply because they have dif- disagreements. There are tools that we can use to find those things out. There, there. I would agree with you in, in that regard. I'm just saying that you know if you if you happen to think that. By singing and using organ music, let's say, uh, in praising God, that that helps you commune better. That that's uh, just as valid as you know being being a Quaker and and having going to the meeting and sitting in together with the community and well, not it, even talking at well, all. I guess what he, what uh, the issue here is, Ian, is what what do you mean by valid? It, valid to the individual, sure. But if you're if the goal is to try to please God. And I'm not taking a side on this particular issue, but if the goal is to please God and God hates organ music, <laughs> then even if you're having a great time playing your organ to God, you're not accomplishing your goal. And that's the difference between having an objective thing in view and having just a subjective thing you're satisfying. If it's merely subjective, people do whatever they want. It doesn't matter in the end run. But if your goal is to try to accomplish a particular kind of thing that's an objective thing, you better have a you better be right about what that objective thing is and, and your route to it, or else you're going to be missing uh, arguably something really uh, vitally important about life. Wonderful. Thank you very much. For, I was going to give you the last word, Ian, and it was a nice last word. You said wonderful. I appreciate that. No worries. Thank uh, you very much. All, all the best. Hope you call again. All right. Bye-bye.